Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, and by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet local and regional authors, and sometimes even farther afield with the magic of remote podcasting, and we hear them read their work. We are a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network, a uh, collection of Charlotte podcasts produced in and centering around the Queen City, and also a proud member of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, broadcasting radio shows and podcasts about authors to a worldwide audience. I'm Landis Wade, the producer and host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer. I'm the author of a trilogy of books where lawyers save Christmas, kind of a cross between My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street, and I write stories, and I love books, and I love dogs, and I love beaches and mountains and fly fishing and sports and reading and more. And I'm excited about today's episode, so let's get to it. In today's episode, we meet Mary Laura Philpott, author of the best-selling memoir and essays, I Miss You When I Blink, named one of NPR's favorite books of 2019, a best book of the year by Esquire and Real Simple, and number one on the Indie Next list by booksellers nationwide. Mary Laura thought she'd crack the code, always be right, and you'll always be happy. But once she completed her life's to-do list, job, spouse, house, babies, check, she found that instead of feeling content and successful, she felt anxious, lost, stuck in a daily grind of overflowing calendars, grueling small talk, and sprawling traffic. She'd done everything right, but she felt all wrong. And what's worse, she wondered, smiling and staying the course or blowing it all up and running away? And are those the only options? In this collection of humorous and poignant observations about home, work, and creative life, Mary Laura Philpott takes on the conflicting pressures of modern adulthood with wit and heart, and she offers up her own stories to show the identity crises don't happen just once or only at midlife, reassures us that small, reoccurring personal reinventions are both normal and necessary, and affirms that multiple things can be true about any one of us at once. But most of all, she learns that when you stop feeling satisfied with your life, you don't have to burn it all down to set off on a transcontinental hike which she says, unless, of course, you want to. <laughs> you can call upon your many selves to figure out who you are, who you're not, and where you belong. Mary Laura starts the show with a reading from the first chapter of the book where her young son reveals to her the perfect sentence, I miss you when I blink. So perfect, in fact, that she wrote a book about it. It's the perfect sentence, but I didn't write it. My six-year-old did. I was sitting at the desk in my home office on a copywriting deadline for a client in the luggage industry, wrestling with a paragraph about suitcases. I leaned forward as if putting my face closer to the computer could help the words on the screen make garment bags sound exciting. My little boy lay on his belly on the rug, working to pass the time until our promised walk to the park. He murmured to himself as he scribbled with a yellow pencil stub on one of my notepads. And I miss you when I blink, he said. It stopped me mid-thought. Say that again? I miss you when I blink, he answered and looked up, pleased to have caught my attention. 
He turned back to his notepad, chattering on with his rhyme. I miss you in the sink. I miss you in a skating rink. When he ripped off the page and tossed it aside, I picked it up and pinned it to the bulletin board on my office wall. I turned those words over in my mind while I folded laundry that afternoon. I thought about them while I brushed my teeth that evening. I repeated them to myself as I lay awake in bed. I said them out loud as I sat in traffic the next day. I miss you when I blink, I thought. How cute. He couldn't have realized how perfectly I miss you when I blink captures that universal adult experience, the identity crisis. But there it is. The old stereotypical identity crisis happens in midlife to a man, and it features a 25-year-old dental hygienist in a pricey sports car with an engine that sounds like a helicopter. The new stereotypical identity crisis happens to a woman, often when she's turning 40, and it involves either a lengthy stay in Tuscany, ideally in a picturesque cottage, or a very long hike, maybe the trail to Machu Picchu, preferably with a large backpack. But the I miss you when I blink kind of identity crisis, that's something else, something under the radar, much more common. For so many people I know, there is no one big midlife smash-up. There's a recurring sense of having met an impasse, a need to turn around and not only change course, but change the way you are. It can happen anytime and many times. As we leave school and enter the real world, as we move in and out of friendships and romances, as we reckon with professional choices and future plans, and sure, when we hit midlife, but earlier and later too. I miss you when I blink. I have felt it so many times in my life, at points where I didn't really know who I was anymore, where I felt that when I closed my eyes, I could feel myself gone. Sometimes I think, damn it, I will never be 15 or 25 or 35 again. Those lives I've lived are over. And I get a little wistful, thinking I might like to get some of that time back. Then I remember my 21-year-old self sitting in my cubicle at my first job out of college, feeling utterly confused and wishing she could disappear. And I think, hey, young me, it gets better, I swear. Worse sometimes, but also better. And when I have anxiety attacks about the future, what if right now is the happiest I will ever be and I'm not appreciating it enough? Will I reach the end of my days having never lived in France or made enough people happy or learned everything there is to know about outer space or being able to do a split? Am I eating enough antioxidants? What will I be doing in 10 years, in 20? I say, I miss you when I blink to myself. And it means get a grip, don't panic. To figure out where to go next, look at where you came from. If you got here, you can get to the next thing. Sometimes in moments of memory or daydream, I feel the different iterations of myself pass by each other, as if right now me crosses paths with past me or imaginary me or even future me in the hallways of my mind. I miss you when I blink, one says. I'm right here, says the other, and reaches out a hand. Hey, listeners, before we dive into the interview here, I'd like to uh, thank you for taking some of your valuable time to listen to this episode today. We really appreciate it. Uh, I'd also like to let you know about a couple of benefits available to our listeners. 
If you sign up for our email list at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com, uh, we will send you a, a free ebook, the first book in my Christmas courtroom trilogy. We promise not to spam you. That just takes way too much time. We just provide a bi-weekly newsletter to let uh, listeners know what's coming and uh, allow you to engage with the show. Also, show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And finally, if you'd like to support your uh, favorite local independent bookstore and get audiobooks at the same time, uh, you can join Libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O.fm. And if you use the promo code Charlotte Reader, that's all one word. You may not be from Charlotte, but you can still be a Charlotte Reader to get this benefit. When you use that promo code, you're going to get uh, two bucks for the price of one when you join at uh, Libro's $14.99 monthly membership level. This is a great way to support uh, your local independent bookstore and get uh, great audiobooks uh, at the same time. So check it out. And now, here's a little bit more about the author. Followed by our conversation, more readings, and our writing life discussion. I hope you enjoy. Mary Laura Philpott is the author of the best-selling memoir and essays, I Miss You When I Blink. Her writing has been featured frequently by the New York Times and also in such outlets as the Washington Post, the Parish Review Daily, O, The Open Magazine, and others. Across her work, Mary Laura examines the overlap of the absurd and the profound in life, literature, and culture. Additionally, Mary Laura is an Emmy-winning co-host of A Word on Words, the lively literary mini-program on Nashville Public Television. She worked as a bookseller for several years and was the founding editor of the digital magazine Musing for Parnassus Books. She also wrote and illustrated the book Penguins with People Problems. She enjoys traveling around the country to speak with people about creativity, work, the ups and downs of perfectionism, reinvention, reading, and writing, and she lives in Nashville, Tennessee with her family. Mary Laura, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, congratulations uh, on the success of uh, Miss You When I Blink. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks. I was just looking to read my bio and thinking that part that says she enjoys traveling around the country. And there you are. She did. <laughs> she Before did. She did when we could travel. Yeah. Um, and we almost uh, couldn't even travel remotely today because uh, you had unexpected chainsaws. Uh, and we had to make adjustments. And I'm just thinking, is that kind of what life is, unexpected chainsaws and having to make adjustments? There you go. That might be the title for my next one, unexpected chainsaws. <laughs> we thought the tree was going to be taken down in our yard last week, but no, it was going to be today, and it's going to be loud. Yeah, so we just pushed it back a little bit, and uh, the chainsaws are doing their thing, and we're doing ours now. But, uh, hey, listen, um, the book itself, it, it was a great book, very well received. I enjoyed reading it. Uh, were you surprised by how your story connected with so many people? I, I was and I wasn't. I, I love that question. I was surprised in the way that I think a lot of writers are surprised when you've worked on a project by yourself, you know, inside your own mind and on the page for years even though you know you're writing a book and it is one day going to be in other people's hands, it's still a little surprising when it happens. And so I was surprised even early on before the book officially came out when there were advanced reader copies being sent to booksellers and reviewers and, and bookstagram people, how instantly, as soon as people started reading it, I started getting um, emails through my website and direct messages on social media from people saying, how did you know what I thinking it's like you got in my mind and then they would some people would tell me their stories they would say this reminds me of the time that this happened to me and that surprised me because 
you know, like I said, it just, it's weird when it finally lives outside your head, but it didn't surprise me only in that I've had that feeling when I've read other people's books. I have read books where as I'm reading, I go, are they in my brain? And, you know, it's a wonderful and amazing thing now that we have the ability to contact authors, you know, just on Twitter. But I've done it before where I've sent a message to someone and said, I just read this book you wrote and I don't know how you did it, but you articulated all the things that I've been thinking and haven't been able to put words to. So I wasn't, I wasn't surprised, but I was certainly delighted that that, that happened. That's what I, that would be, you know, my greatest hope is that people will connect with it. Yeah, and I suppose that, um, you know, when people are going through uh, the things that you described that you went through in your uh, book, uh, people feel alone. They don't feel like there's someone else that's actually experiencing the same things they are. So it's nice when someone who can write can tell the story like you did and connect with other people. I always say loneliness compounds every problem. Like any problem, whether it's big or small, if you think you're the only one going through it and that it makes you an outlier or it makes you weird or it makes you somehow wrong, the problem seems so much worse. So even if you even if you aren't yet to the point where you solve the problem or you figure your way out of it, just taking the loneliness out of the equation and realizing it's not just you can make any problem seem so much more surmountable. And I've experienced that with, with books as well. So, um, yeah, I'm thrilled that that's the case. So I've got a few questions I've you know thought about asking today, but one that just came to me when you read that uh, uh, opening piece there, and, and it's a real important question. The question is, have you now learned how to do a split? No. That's more than I've ever been, and I'm having to come to terms with that. I can't do a split, and I don't know if I'm ever going to live in France. It's still a goal, but, you know, I, I was supposed to be in France later this year, and it's clearly not going to happen. So I don't know. I mean, I'm eating my antioxidants, though. There you go. All right. Well, look, um, in the opening, I mentioned the fact that, um, you know, you had all these to do on your list there, job, spouse, house, babies, and you checked them off. Um, but you weren't feeling content. You weren't feeling successful. You had anxiety. You were lost. You were stuck. And you talked about how you went through that in the book. And I'm just wondering, how's your anxiety level these days? Uh, are you getting enough material for your next book or uh, what's going on? The anxiety never goes away with me. That's just part of who I am. This is not one of those memoirs where at the beginning it's like, I started out as an anxious person, but now I'm sick. I'm still an anxious person. I am just a very self-aware anxious person. But I will say it was a helpful process. Uh, I mean, who could have known that it would be helpful during a pandemic, but to write this book and kind of examine the arc of what I went through mostly in my, my 20s and 30s is what this book is about, um, and see the patterns in how I respond to things that make me anxious because now I can see those patterns coming up and either you know give into the pattern or try to change it a little bit. And I, like a lot of people, I think I'm somebody who enjoys having control or the illusion of having control over the world around me, and boy, do we not have that right now. So I'm trying to practice my meditation and my just rolling with things and letting go of things because, you know, the world is so different from one day to the next. We have a year's worth of a news cycle every 24 hours. Yeah. We're going to talk about type A and perfectionism before the four or three today, but uh, there's a scene in your book that I was just laughing out loud about it. It, it, <laughs> it appears at a point um, when you're feeling stuck a little bit um, and you're having this conversation with your husband about uh 
you know, you need, you just want to be able to go, you know, bungee jumping and, and, and you know, and you, but you've stuck, you can't do that. You, you got all these things you got to do. And your husband, he's not getting, he says, what, you want to go bungee jumping? And you're like, no, the point is everything is keeping me from bungee jumping. <laughs> I was having flashbacks this spring trapped in the house with my kids who were not at school to that time in my life when I had teeny little babies and I was sort of held hostage by nap time. And I couldn't work when inspiration hit me. I had to really try to like get up early to do it or do it at strange times. And I watched my husband go off to work every day, get on a plane. And I, and, and in that scene that you're describing, I was so frustrated because I, instead of thinking to myself, this is temporary, this is right now, this is not forever. I was feeling like this is my life. My life is diapers and never finishing my to-do list and never getting anything done and being trapped in my home. I am trapped forever. I can't do, I couldn't go, you know, fishing if I wanted to. I couldn't go bungee jumping if I wanted to. And of course, you know, he being such, such a wonderfully calm person and he takes things very literally. He was like, you want to go fishing and bungee jumping? And, well, I don't. You got you to pick up the, the subtext there, which is I feel trapped. I just need to remember that I'm not trapped. Yeah, and that is uh, something to keep in mind, particularly during COVID. We're recording this now to come out in late August, and, you know, things are not changing very fast. I mean, they're changing for the worse sometimes, and we're, we're having to adjust. But And so we can't necessarily have everything the way we want it to be. And I'm kind of a type A person, too, and I am have these perfectionist tendencies, and as a podcaster, like you called me this morning, where we're going to push this back. Well, you know, two years ago, I'd have been like, oh, this is messing my whole thing. Now it's like, let's roll with this thing. You know, let's roll with it. Let's talk perfection a moment. Um, in your opinion, is it a curse? Is it a virtue? Or is it something in between? It's both. You know, it's it. there's an essay in the book called Wonder Woman where I write about a little bit about my mother and about... I, I try to do the thing that a lot of authors and creators do where they try to track some trait they have all the way back to their upbringing and kind of figure out whose fault is it? Let's blame it on my parents. And so I try that. I'm like, let's see if I can blame this perfectionism thing on my mom. Um, and where I land at the end of the essay is like kind of can and I kind of can't. And really it doesn't matter. It's, it's everything about me is neither all her fault or all to her credit. There's a lot of things that go into who we are, but the perfectionism thing can be great. I, you know, I can give my perfectionism credit for a lot of the things that I've done in life. A lot of the things that took persistence, um, job related things, promotions that I've had, creative successes I've had. Um, a lot of this great stuff in life you only get if you are willing to dig in and hang on and keep working on it until it's perfect. So that's awesome. Um, but I don't sleep well at night because I like, you know, I lie in my bed thinking of what did I not perfect today? What still needs fixing? What did I mess up? Who did I have a conversation with where I might have embarrassed myself? And how can I rewrite that conversation word for word while I lie here under my covers? You know, perfection can be haunting in a way because you, if you have perfectionism deep in your bones, you can't turn it on and turn it off when it's convenient and when it's not convenient. So it's a little of both. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I do think it uh, it takes some modulation, some balance, because 
a certain level of perfectionism means that you're, you want to get it right. You want to be on time. You want to make sure that things are uh, as they should be. And yet uh, it's a curse for authors sometimes who want to keep rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. At some point it's got to be put out there in the world, right? Right, right. It's, um, you know, a, a story that I love to tell because it illustrates exactly the point you just said is, when you're a perfectionist, editing it feels wonderful because you're making something better every time you go back to it. But it'll never go out into the world unless you draw a line and say, okay, we're done here. And I had that moment with this book. Um, it came out in April of 2019. So in, I guess it was like November, December of the year prior was my last time to see the galley, to see from the printer what it would look like when it was printed and it was my last chance to change any little thing. I could only change a little thing. Like if I noticed a comma was missing, I could say, Ooh, you missed that comma. That was it. So I, I did that. It's called second pass pages. I got through my second pass pages and I put it down and I kind of had this little ceremony with my, myself and my book where I said, okay, this is the last time I will ever read you from start to finish. You don't belong to me anymore. You belong to the readers. Goodbye. And I, you know, sent it back off to my publisher and I made peace with the fact that I would never again read through that book because I knew I couldn't or I would want to change things. And a week later, I got an email from my editor saying, we'd like you to listen to these audio clips from various actors uh, so we can hire the person to read your audio book. And I said, sure, I'm happy to do that. But also if you if you want me to do it, I'm glad to do it. I have some audio experience and I, you know, I, as a reader, I love to listen to memoirs read by the author. And they said, um, oh, great. Okay. Well, we'll have you do it. We'll set that up. You can record it. And I realized I was going to have to read through it again, start to finish into a microphone and not be allowed to change anything. So, so much for that little, that little ceremony, because I did have to read it again all the way through and I wasn't allowed to change even one thing. Yeah, that's great. I had a, similar situation with my first book where I kept revising this one paragraph and I think I was just stalling to to do the final like you said to, to send it off and I spent about 45 minutes with it and I realized that I'd worked myself right back to where I started <laughs> at which point I said okay I, yeah I'm done <laughs> I need to move on uh, all right let's talk about reinvention for just a minute you um that is a theme in your book about uh um, how to reinvent oneself, uh, both in terms of maybe physical location where you live, uh, what you're doing with your life. Um, part of your reinvention involved moving your family from Atlanta to Nashville. And I'm just wondering, uh, you talk about this in the book, how, how hard is it to sort of, you got these competing things going on. Your soul is telling you, I've got to make this move. But then the practical side of it is saying, I'm just, I'm a disruptor here. I'm disrupting things for my family. It's hard. And it, it, it does make you feel like a disruptor. If you're a, if you are a perfectionist and you decide to do something that goes against the grain or that goes against what everyone around you is doing, which is what it feels like sometimes to make changes that when you get perspective and when you have a, some distance and time to look at that, you can go, that really was not that big of a deal, but you know how in the moment when you're surrounded by your routine and your life and your friends and your neighbors and your family and your family commitments and your work commitments. It feels like I am so entrenched in this mesh of my life that if I were to pull myself out of it, it would probably all fall apart and people would get mad and I would be letting everyone down. And that so rarely is the case. 
You know, one of the best conversations I had when I was thinking about um, moving our family from Atlanta to Nashville, I called a friend who had left Atlanta a few years earlier to move to another town. And I said, how how did you know it was the right thing to do? At what point in your decision-making process did you know for sure it was the right choice? And she said, I never did. I never knew for sure it was the right choice. She said, I remember standing in my driveway, watching the moving truck, like put that little ramp down and start walking my furniture up into the truck going, oh, I hope this is not a mistake. And that to me was really comforting to hear somebody else go, you're not ever going to feel like it's any decision is the perfect decision. But you, if you wait for the moment where you feel like you're making a perfect decision, you're never going to do anything. Never going to make any decision because there is no decision. That's true. Um, all right. We well, you know you're a very accomplished writer. You've been published widely. You've got this uh, bestseller. But I'm going to take you back in time a little bit to uh, high school here, uh, writing at an early age. Uh, we're going to talk about lobsters and lobster men. Um, and uh, you've got, I think this read is kind of self explanatory. Why don't we just do this and then we'll talk about it afterwards, okay? Okay. Sounds great. Okay, so I'm picking up in the essay called Lobster Man Midway Through and sort of reading pieces, but it should hold together pretty well. My third grade teacher reprimanded me almost daily for writing in phrases instead of sentences. We had to read these little paragraphs like, Mike drives the bus in the morning. The bus is red. Children get on. Children get off. And then we were expected to answer questions about them in complete sentences. But tell me this. If someone asked you, what does Mike drive? Would you say, Mike drives a red bus? Or would you say, a red bus? I bet you just say a red bus. Otherwise, you're wasting words, right? No sense being redundant. Alas, my teacher did not agree. I got an F in writing. I stand by those sentence fragments. Economy of words. You'd think an F would have really set me off. But unlike a B, which means you haven't quite achieved an A, an F seemed like a crazy novelty, not even a real grade. That woman's an idiot, my mom said. I learned how to write in complete sentences. I've known how all along, really. And I started using them in school, but only when I had to. In 11th grade, my English teacher gave our class a pop writing assignment in which we were to write a story that began with the sentence she put on the board. The sentence was something like, the lobster man looked out over the water, dot, dot, dot. I don't recall exactly, but the word lobster man was definitely in there. I remember thinking really hard about this character and what a difficult life he must have had being half man, half lobster. He's the most human-like of the monsters and the most monstrous of quasi-human. He walks on two legs and doesn't have superpowers. He can't shoot flames from his eyes or breathe underwater. He is almost totally normal as people go, but for that one little thing. Where other people have fingers, which they use to hold on to coffee cups, to wave in greeting, to clasp each other in love, he has a hard, sharp pincher that would crush human bones if he tried to shake hands. He wears oversized sleeves sometimes, so his difference isn't always immediately noticeable but everyone figures it out eventually. He can't carry open weave crocheted shopping bags. The holes catch his claws and snag. He has lost too many groceries this way, oranges and cans of crab meat rolling across the sidewalk. But on the upside, 
He can remove the crimped metal tops from beer bottles without a bottle opener. He sunburns easily. He has a real name, maybe Melvin or Jake, but no one remembers what it is because everyone around town calls him Lobster Man. Only behind his back, because most people don't talk to him at all. Poor Lobster Man. Out there living among regular men with regular hands. Misunderstood. Impaired. Shunned. I found out after turning in the paper that a lobsterman is a person who catches lobsters, like a fisherman. How did all my classmates know that? We lived nowhere near the water. In school, we're taught to do our best, but we're limited by the bounds of what we understand to be right. And right looks different to everyone, apparently. Maybe we all walk around assuming everyone is interpreting the world the same way we are, and being surprised when they aren't. And that's the loneliness and confusion of the human experience in a nutshell, or lobster shell. I wonder how many times my children will find themselves in a lobster man story scenario where they're doing one thing only to find out later that everybody else was doing another. And how many of those will be because I lobster manned something as a parent? Quite a few, probably. And there's no way to see them coming. But tell me this, which would you rather read? A story about a guy who catches lobsters or a story about a guy who is a lobster? <laughs> yeah, I want to I want to read the story about the guy that is a lobster. <laughs> Thank did, you have, did you have fun writing that uh, that uh, chapter? I did. I did. And I, I like those pieces that you pulled out. The chapter obviously is longer and it has some vignettes from other other times growing up where in retrospect, I can see that I was doing something different from what everyone else was doing and then would realize it and go, wait, why was I, why am I weird? Why is my thing weird and everybody else's thing normal? Um, which I think is such a common, it's such a common experience to think I'm the one who's broken and strange and everyone else knows what's going on when in fact, most of us are walking around thinking that same thing. Now, Mary Laura, at some point during um, the writing, you wrote these essays over a period of time and then you kind of collected them together and then probably wrote some more to tie it together. But at some point you wrote a letter to yourself. Um, you wrote a letter to the type A person in distress. And uh, was that did that start out as kind of a journal uh, project or, or what? That is one of my favorite, was one of my favorite pieces to write because like you said, I wrote it as if I was writing to someone else. Like, here's a letter to you, person who needs to hear this. But I was totally writing it to myself. And it was very much um, meant to be a comfort and just sort of saying, hey, I see you. I know why you do these things that seem crazy. I understand where that comes from. And I sort of riff in the essay about, you know, you do this and it's crazy. And you do this and it's crazy. But I understand why. And when I was doing that, that riffing, um, most of that got edited out because I was just naming every crazy thought I'd ever had in my mind. I was like, sometimes you want to murder people in traffic because they stop too soon. And you know, you can't murder people. And that's one, you know, that's not in there, but, um, but it was really fun to write because it, it was comforting. Yeah. You start out and you're going to, before the break here, I'm going to have you read just a, a part of this. It's uh, you start out, put down your phone, your post-it notes for just a minute. I know you're busy rewriting your to-do list in your head. 
first chronologically and then in order of task magnitude <laughs> and then visually like a pie chart and so on and so forth. But there's a uh, then you're going to pick it up here. Um, and, and so just read a little bit and then we'll take our break here. Sure. I want you to know that I've seen your face when someone parks over the line in a crowded parking lot and inadvertently wastes a whole second spot. And I know your scowl isn't really about the parking space. When you stop to pick up trash on a sidewalk or put the to-go menus back in their rack at the sandwich shop, you wish you didn't have to. You'd rather everyone else pull their weight. But if they won't, you will. You like having work to do, but it's hard for you to work alongside people who cut corners and blow off responsibilities. It feels like they're doing these things to spite you. Like they slack off because they know you'll catch whatever balls they drop. You can't fathom how they can feel okay letting so many things remain half done. This leaves you in a constant state of simmering low-grade resentment. And you feel guilty about occasionally having the urge to throw your laptop at someone's face. You wish these things didn't get to you. You want to live in that world. And I won't tell anybody, but I know you didn't really want to make costumes for the Community Center Spring Musical. You don't even like Mary Poppins, but you filled out the feedback form after last year's play because that's what you're supposed to do if you attend, fill out the feedback form. And because you were so detailed, because that's what you should do, you should get details if someone asks for your input. They asked you to do the costumes this year, and you said yes. Because that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to give help when someone asks for it. And now you're stuck trying to figure out how to make Mary Poppins' dress fit around the cast on the young actor's broken arm. And you want the play to be great, but you wish you hadn't said yes. And you're mad that no one else said yes. And that the same people always end up doing everything. You wish you could take a break from carrying everything. It's all so heavy. You are so fucking tired. So are you tired when you read it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired all the time now. I'm not I'm not sleeping so well in this pandemic time. I have really colorful, strange dreams these days about everything I can imagine going wrong and then also dreams that seem to have nothing to do with the pandemic, but I can only imagine are somehow byproducts of that constant stress. Yeah, I love how you're frustration level could get so high that you might throw your laptop at, <laughs> at someone's face. Um, there's another scene in the book. We're not going to read from it, but um, it fits with this theme here of you're having to do certain things because you're supposed to do this. You're supposed to volunteer. You're supposed to be on a committee. You're supposed to do this, that, and the other. And you being, you know, the type A and wanting to get it right, you get on a committee and you're doing all the things you need to do. And you even drew some sketches and things for somebody and, someone who's there's always one or two of these on a committee right they're gonna turn their nose up at whatever idea anyone it doesn't matter what it is they're always going to have a negative opinion about it and i think her sort of backhanded critique was uh so this is what you do with your day Mm -hmm. And at the time you're going through this identity thing and you're doing the best you can. And she's there in her business suit, probably just come from a meeting from work or something. She's talking down to you in this respect. Hopefully everyone in the world knows. Never ask anyone, what do you do all day? Or what do you do with your time? 
It's a terrible question. If you want to know how someone spends their day, ask it in a nicer way and ask it for a good reason. But, it, you know, like you said, that uh, that moment came at a time in my life when I was questioning how I spent my day. I had gone with with really kind of an abrupt, almost whiplash like suddenness from being a full time member of the workforce to really I, I took pride in my job. I loved my job. It, this was back when um, I worked at the national headquarters for the American Cancer Society. I worked in corporate communications. I don't remember what my title was. I think it was like editorial director or managing editor or something, but I wrote important words that people said out loud and it mattered a lot to me. And then when I had my first child, um, I really, really wanted to be home with him during his babyhood because everyone had told me it goes by so fast. If you're not paying attention, you know, you'll, you'll wish you had been there. And so I quit. I didn't go part-time. I quit that job entirely and, and stayed home 100% with this baby. And it was so, it was wonderful in all the ways that that experience is wonderful, but also terrible in that I hadn't anticipated the whiplash and I hadn't anticipated that I would have all this um, creative and productive and work-like energy and nowhere to put it. And that, that's just a really disorienting feeling. So it was the perfect storm and that I had all that going on inside at the moment when I did what I thought I was supposed to do. I thought when you're a grown up, you're supposed to like be on civic committees and things. And so I joined this neighborhood improvement committee and I'd, you know, made the flyer for the garden sale or whatever. And I'd drawn, you know, I'm also a cartoonist sometimes. And so I'd drawn little cartoon penguins and flowers on it. I mean, not penguins, pumpkins and flowers on it. And, and this woman, you know, who was just not a nice person, looked at it and was like, oh, cartoonist, is that what you do all day? And she, little did she know, she had just like struck me in the heart. All right, when we come back, uh, we're going to talk uh, about uh, Nora Ephron and the lives of trees. We're going to uh, do some uh, writing life discussion. We've got uh, uh, another couple of reads. It's going to be a lot of fun, so uh, stay with us, please. Hey, listeners, I'd like to share some information with you about uh, four organizations that are important players in our literary community, and uh, they're also supporters of the podcast. Uh, Spark Publications, Charlotte Lit, Charlotte Writers Club, and North Carolina Writers Network. Spark Publications is one of our early supporters, and they have been sending me some uh, wonderful authors uh, with some well-designed books. They are an award-winning independent publishing firm that helps authors bring their work to life. They work strategically with their authors to help them complete their manuscripts, design their covers and books uh, for marketability, register their ISBNs and Library of Congress numbers, proofread, manage the print options, market, and much more. To find out more about how you can publish a nonfiction or art book with the support of an experienced team, check out sparkpublications.com. Charlotte Litt, otherwise known as Charlotte Center for Literary Arts, is an organization in which I'm a member. It's a nonprofit art center whose mission is to celebrate the literary arts by educating and engaging writers and readers through classes, conversations, and community. Uh, I really enjoy participating in those classes. Uh, they see themselves, and I do too, as a valued and vital part of the Charlotte arts community, and they've become a premier creative writing center for the region. You can find out more about them and how to participate at charlottelit.org. For 98 years, the Charlotte Writers Club has continued to offer a supportive writing environment in the greater Charlotte community. Uh, I was a board member of that uh, organization for a few years recently. Uh, really enjoyed uh, participating that way and also in their regular meetings, their contests, and their 
community organizations. They offer a monthly newsletter, uh, monthly meetings, and speakers. Yeah, I'm a speaker chairman too. Uh, they do critique groups, open mics, and uh, they offer writing workshops and writing contests. You can find out more about uh, Charlotte Writers Club at uh, charlottewritersclub.org. I'm also a member of the North Carolina Writers Network. Uh, they offer six annual competitions, three annual conferences, and I think I've attended uh, all three of those. Many online classes uh, and critiquing and editing services uh, for their members. They serve over 1,400 members in North Carolina and beyond uh, in all genres and all levels of experience uh, with all manner of publishing credits. To find out more about the North Carolina Writers Network, uh, check out ncwriters.org. As a writer and a reader, I have benefited from participating in all three of these writing organizations, Charlotte Writers Club, Charlotte Lit, and North Carolina Writers Network. It's been a great experience for me. I've also enjoyed collaborating with Spark Publications, meeting and uh, interviewing their authors and looking at their fine work. If you'd like to check out uh, what each of these uh, supporters has to offer, uh, go to our show notes, uh, scroll to the bottom, and you'll find information about each one, uh, links, and also a promo code. All right, listeners, uh, we're back uh, with Mary Laura Philpott. She's the author of I Miss You When I Blink, and uh, we've been talking about all kinds of things in this episode, and we're going to do some more of that. Uh, it's uh, kind of, I suppose this is, uh, it's memoir, but it's it's not a, yeah, I started here and I ended up here. You took pieces of your life and the emotions you were feeling during those pieces of time, and you wrote these memoirs uh in essays and one of the ones you wrote uh brought into play uh Nora Ephron and you, you kind of started out with a little uh disappointment in the sense that uh she was critical of people like you who might cry at something <laughs> <laughs> yes this one um so I'm going to read at, at your request I'm reading some little tidbits from this essay, the larger essay, which appears, um, I actually wrote it for the Paris Review, and I wrote it, and um, they published it in the fall, and it was a lot about um, my feelings regarding the natural world and the comfort that I take in animals and plants and being outside. But um, but my way into it is this this one, and Nora Ephron. So I will read a few little pieces from that essay called Nora Ephron and the Lives of Trees. There's a line in Nora Ephron's autobiographical novel, Heartburn. Show me a woman who cries when the trees lose their leaves in autumn and I'll show you a real asshole. I read the book for the first time in seventh grade, not exactly age appropriate, and again as an adult, which is when I thought, wait a second, I cry sometimes when leaves fall. I've also been known to get a little teary when I see a craggy pebble that looks like a frowning face. I sniffle when I see a skunk in my yard who looks lonely like it's dawning on him that all his skunk friends went on an adventure and purposely didn't tell him where they were going. I laugh, too, like when I see a twig that looks like it's giving me the finger. I chuckle when I see an ant trying to carry half a fruit loop. I shouldn't care what the late Nora Ephron would have thought of me. It's not like we were friends. She was old enough to be my mother, but she was not my mother, or my aunt, or my cousin, or anyone with any connection to me. But we people-pleasers want to be liked even by people we've never met, especially by people we admire. How many times have I seen when Harry met Sally? More than I could ever remember or count. Oh, how I marveled at the words Nora Ephron put into Meg Ryan's and Billy Crystal's mouths. 
what a genius she was. I wish she were still alive so I could explain to her how much I loved her work and also how wrong she was about this one thing. The end of the essay concludes like this. We're all a little confused about each other most of the time. That's probably why, instead of curbing my animal drawing habit when I grew up, I drew more and more the older I got. Is it weird that a full-grown woman published a whole book of cartoon birds experiencing botched social interactions, existential dread, and petty grievances? Or does it make perfect sense? The latter, I say. So yes, goes with Nora Ephron, when fall comes and the world turns cold and inhospitable, I cry because everything in nature decays. And if there's humanity in nature, well, then there's nature in humanity as well. If everything dies, then everyone dies. And that means my family and my friends, me, and guess who else? Nora Ephron, that's who. You're not even here to call me an asshole, Nora. We never even met. Now you're gone, just like the leaves in November. I think she would have understood. I really do. <laughs> so, Mary Laura, I love how you, you, you go from the sadness that you're feeling, the loneliness that you're feeling, then you inject the humor, and it's almost like we're on a roller coaster here to some extent. And I wonder um, where that humor comes from. Have you always uh, enjoyed the banter? Have you always enjoyed that part of the writing process? I... I was just the other day doing a, um, some online teaching to, to writers and someone asked a question about humor. How do she asked, how do I learn to be funny? And I said, if you don't have to learn to be funny, like don't feel like you have to be funny in writing. If that's not a way that you are, um, for me, it is, it is something that came from, I think my upbringing, my mother is hysterical. And my dad is very dryly funny. It's a very dry sense of humor. And my brother is really funny. So I was always surrounded by people who were funny, in a not in a knock-knock joke way, but in a calling things like they see them way and using really accurate language to describe what is happening in a frank way that is jolting. Like, it makes you laugh because it makes you realize, oh my gosh, that's so true. So that's the kind of sense of humor that I have, it's, it's not a joking sense of humor. Um, and I think in a way it's, it's tied to the things that are sad. Like when I am experiencing something that is sad, when I am um, in a part of that essay that I didn't read, I write about watching a video where a cow was airlifted out of a ravine in Italy. This was on YouTube or the news or something. I don't know how I stumbled across this, but this helicopter comes down and, and someone puts a net around this cow who has gotten trapped in a ravine and can't get out. And you see it lifting the cow up. And it's just hundreds and hundreds of feet up in the air. And the look on this cow's face to me was so <laughs> just emblematic of what life feels like. And this cow was looking around like, what? hell is happening right now. It had no context for what was going on. A cow has never heard of a helicopter. A cow does not know what flying is. A cow has never seen the ground from any angle other than standing on it. And I, and you know, when I tell that story, both in the book and, and when I do it out loud at performances or readings, people laugh. 
and I don't mean it to be funny. Like to me, it's very sad and feels very emotionally true to feel that lost and that much like what the hell is happening. But I guess it's funny too. So to me, that the things that are absurd and things that are funny and things that are sad and poignant are the same things very, very often. Yeah, they're tied together, and it and it's subtle. I mean, you, you know, you're talking about how things die and decay. Uh, which means in the natural world, everyone dies. And that means my family and me. But then you know who else? It's that person who criticizes the people who cry at things. It's Nora Ephron. That's who. <laughs> so you bring that back in. But you've always kind of weaved this into your work. You, you, um, I had J.D. Dupuy on the show. Y'all had done this uh, book together, Poetic Justice, which has humor built in poetry. You've done the penguins uh, that you drew. Um, that can't help but be funny, even though they're dealing with real people problems. Um, and now you inject some of that uh, into this, which is kind of a good transition into our writing life segment. Um, I'd like to talk to you about, um, before I talk to you about the process of writing and that kind of thing, I, I want to talk about independent book stores. You worked in a bit independent bookstore for a while. You're a bookseller. Talk about the importance of independent bookstores, what they mean to uh, this uh, community of readers and writers. Oh man, this is one of my favorite things in the whole wide world to talk about. Um, I know you've got your your copy of I Miss You When I Blink came from Main Street Books in Davidson, North Carolina. So let's give them a little shout. Um, yeah, I worked for six years. Yeah, six years. I worked for Parnassus Books in Nashville, Tennessee. That's actually the job um, marketing for that store is the job that I followed from Atlanta to Nashville. So they were a big part of, of the whole narrative arc that happens in this book. Um, I, I, this is one of my favorite topics to talk about, and you're going to have to just cut me off. But um, independent bookstores are, are the heart and soul of the literary community and also just communities in general. You know, if you live in a town that has a bookstore and you go into that bookstore, that is where you're going to meet the greatest people. You're going to find things to read that entertain you and change your mind about things and open your mind about things. They have events for kids you know if you live in a, if you don't live somewhere with an independent bookstore or you know a good library i love libraries as much as any bookstores you don't have story times they they add so much to the communities where they are and they do so much for both readers and writers the whole reason this book now if you buy a copy it says national bestseller on the top that is 100 due to independent bookstores booksellers who read this book and liked it and put it out front on a shelf and put a little shelf talker. That's what we call those cards, the little handwritten cards that say, you know, my name is Landis and I work here and I love this book and you should buy it. Um, they're super readers. Book Booksellers are super readers. They read so much and they make it their life's mission to be matchmakers and help the readers who they know in their communities find the thing that they're going to enjoy next or the thing that is going to surprise and delight them next. So um, I know there are easy, fast delivery, deeply discounted services out there on the internet where you can get books, but nothing replaces what bookstores do. So if you want to live in a town with a bookstore, if you want to live in a city where there's a bookstore within walking distance of your house, get your books from that store. Yeah, and you and I both went to Davidson, and uh, Main Street Books is right there in downtown uh, Davidson. I actually had a live podcast uh, up at Main Street Books uh, earlier in the year, and I've done live podcast at uh, 
Park Road Books, which is a sponsor. And then we have a sponsor as well. That's the Shaw McMurg Library. We're talking about basically these uh, institutions, and that's what they are, libraries and independent bookstores uh, that um, actually, you know, there are people there who will talk to you about books. What do you like to read? What do you, you know, what are you interested in? Well, here, try this out or try that out. And you find a lot of good reads there. And there's something else, and I'm, I've talked about it, I think, somewhere in this show, um, audiobooks, uh, Libro.fm. Uh, you've got audiobook. You, you talked about your audiobook uh, that you recorded yourself. Uh, and I'm not sure many people understand um, how Libro helps to support independent bookstores. Um, you're a big fan of Libro, so yeah. how, about a, how about a little shout out for them and how they work? They are awesome. I cannot describe in accurate technical terms how they work, so go to their website and figure it out. But the whole reason they exist is they wanted there to be an alternative for audiobook listening that supported indie bookstores. The purchases made through Libro FM um, do put money back in the the budgets of independent bookstores. You can choose which bookstore you want to support. You know, you can say if you if you love Parnassus books, you can say I'm going to select them as my Libro FM provider store, and you're basically buying your audiobooks from Parnassus the same way you would buy a paperback from Parnassus, which is is wonderful. And they're also just really good literary citizens. Libro FM is very involved in the literary ecosystem. They um, during you know during Black Lives Matter protests and the sort of the whole civil rights situation that is going on right now, they have been really proactive about putting out um, reading lists and raising the visibility of books by black authors. They, um, they have, they're really also just really fun to shop with their, their site. What you do is you go on their site, like on your laptop, you buy the books you want, and then you can access them from the app on any device that you have. And their site is so it's very elegantly designed. It's pretty, it's just, it's not tacky and busy looking. They've got things divided into shopping lists by like, um, here are the New York Times bestsellers this week. Here are uh, books that come highly recommended by booksellers. So in that way, they're actually keeping up this beautiful thing that indie bookstores do, which is that hand sell experience. Here are books that are personally recommended by booksellers who work in bookstores. Um, you know, it was, and this is hugely important for right now when we're all locked in our homes with our children, but they have great uh, audiobook shopping lists for kids divided by age. So, you know, if you need something for your four-year-old to listen to and something for your 12-year-old to listen to, you can go on there and find absolutely anything. It's just a great, great company and um, a wonderful way to keep supporting indie bookstores, even if you are someone who likes to read with your ears. Yeah, and I uh, we've got now uh, a relationship with uh, Libro here on Charlotte Rivers Podcast. And when I was talking to the good people there, uh, I was telling them I was going to be interviewing you, and they said, uh, "Oh, we love Mary Laura." So you've already, you know, made friends at at Libro. But uh, basically, uh, listeners, you can you can go and use this uh, promo code, uh, which is Charlotte Reader. Uh, you might not be from Charlotte, but uh, hey, if you use Charlotte Reader, you're going to get <laughs> when you sign up for that. Uh, monthly membership, you're not only get get your first book, uh, you're going to get an extra book free. And um, you could even get Mary Laura's book with one of those and uh, and listen to it in her own voice. Uh, so Mary Laura, speaking of memoir, um, you know, sometimes people approach the topic uh, of memoir with trepidation. Uh, yeah, they've got a story to tell, but they're not sure how much to tell. 
were you ever afraid um, to tell some of these secrets, these internal battles you were having with yourself uh, publicly? And if so, uh, what made you decide to do it? Um, that is a great question. There is, it's so interesting the difference between what sometimes people assume a memoir is and what it actually is. Um, there's a great essay that was written by Danny Shapiro, who's a wonderful writer and friend of mine. Um, her book Inheritance is great. So is Hourglass. So are all her books. But um, when, I think it was two books ago for her, so that it was probably three or four years ago, it, one of her memoirs was coming out. And she wrote this uh, essay for the New York Times Book Review. And the title was something like, when you write memoir, people think they know you better than they do. Um, because she was having this experience of, of choosing stories from her life to put into her books. You know, she, she writes memoirs sort of like I do, like here are 20 stories from my life. And we're going to call this a book. People would read that and then kind of connect all the dots of those stories and assume they knew her, like they entirely knew her and they would come to her events and, and say, um, ask questions and say things as if she had just built her whole life to them. And she couldn't make people understand, no, there's so much more of my life you're not reading. You're getting, you know, 0.001% of my actual human existence in this book um, because this book is a piece of literature. It's a piece of art. I'm not just, it's not my diary. I've, you know, I've picked 30 stories or whatever to tell you, 30 questions to answer. And they do come together and form a narrative arc. They do tell a larger story, but they're not telling you my whole life story. It's not a biography. I <laughs> hope there will never be a biography of me. That would be so boring. Um, so I kind of, I've wandered off from your original question, but that's all to say, I don't feel nervous like I'm completely exposed or I've told all these super secret things about myself because I haven't. I've chosen what goes into this book um, by choosing stories that contribute to the greater purpose of the book, that contribute to the overall story. And I know this is a podcast that people can't see my hands, but you can see I'm doing this, like I'm making this circle with my hands. If it doesn't belong to the overall whole, the piece doesn't go in. Um, I interviewed David Sedaris once and I asked him um, where his line was in terms of what he shares and does not share. And he said, I don't tell other people's stories, which is how I feel about it too. I, I'm, I don't tell things about other people. I don't really even include other people in my stories unless they have to be part of the story in order for me to tell my own experience. So um, I don't feel like I've exposed other people. I don't really feel like I've exposed that much about me other than what I wanted to expose and what I wanted to do in this book. As I realized the further I got into it was right about reinvention and write about thinking you know where you're going in your life and then getting there and going, oh, no, that is not where I'm meant to be. What do you do in that moment? So, um, you know, it definitely was weird when it first came out. The, the day that there was, there was a big cover reveal day where like the publisher put the, the cover image out on the internet for the first time and a couple media outlets picked that up. That was the one time that I really felt like like the way I described it at the time, it was like I opened a door and walked into a room and all my internal organs were on the floor that I was like, oh, the book is out there. But then I realized, of course, it's out there. I wanted it to be out there. I wrote it so it could be out there. Yeah, but you do get in, I mean, you do disclose, and rightly so, um, if you're going to write memoir, 
uh, the truth about yourself and when you're taking on these different topics. And by doing so, you are sort of stripping yourself down for people to see a part of you, maybe not your whole self, but at least that part of yourself. And, uh, you know, I had Judy Goldman on the show as a memoirist, and she talked about how, you know, you have to tell the truth, you know, uh, when you're writing memoir, that you can't just tell the good parts. (laughs) You have to tell the other parts, because if you don't, you're not revealing the human being that's telling the story. Right, right. What can what makes people connect to a book, I think, is feeling like they have identified in that book some emotionally true something, some emotional truth is in that book that they recognize within themselves to be true. And I think this is true for fiction as well. You know, not by in telling a story and creating a character, you can convey emotional truth. And that's what connects people to books and makes them go, oh, yes, I feel that. I get that. And, you know, people always say, I feel seen. That's what makes them feel seen is tapping into an emotional truth. And you're right. You can only do that by digging into emotional depth. You can't do it by telling a story on the surface. So, yeah, I did have to dig into some emotional depth, and some of it was unpleasant emotional depth. Some There were parts of this book that I thought, maybe I can get away without writing that part. And I had to write it at the very end because I realized, no, I cannot tell this overall story without digging you know, deeply into these more unpleasant parts. And, and what were some of the more difficult parts for you to tell, Mary Laura, in this story? There's... Um, there's not one particular essay that was harder than, than any of the others, but any time in this book that I refer back to a period in my 30s when I was very, very unhappy and, and deeply depressed, um, it comes up several times in the book. All the sentences around that I wrote during one two-day period where I actually I, I had to get out of my surroundings. I went to a hotel here in Nashville, stayed in my room for two days eating room service cheeseburgers. I'm putting myself back in the mental frame of that deep depression so that I could articulate it clearly. Um, So I I wrote like five pages worth of text about what that felt like. And then, you know, later when I was writing other essays in the book, I would mine from those five pages what I needed whenever I needed to refer back to that time. Because what I didn't want to do is keep putting myself back in that frame of mind. I'm very glad to have moved past it. I don't want to, I don't want to dwell in that difficult emotional territory, but I did need to be able to articulate it clearly. So that's kind of how I dealt with that. Yeah. Now you worked very hard, Mary Laura, to get from where you were as a writer uh, who's featuring the lives of lobstermen to uh, to the success that you've, you've had now. And I'm just curious, you know, when success, success arrives, you know, there can be joy, there can be satisfaction. Sometimes there can be a different kind of reaction too, like uh, maybe the pressure's ratcheted up a little bit. I'm just curious about um, how you were able to process the success and how that uh, is propelling you to the next step. That's a great question. Um, you know, literary success, I feel like, is a little bit different from other types of success. Like if, if you are a very successful baseball player, you are going to make a ton of money and be on baseball cards. If you are a very successful, you know, real estate agent at the top of your game, you're selling multi-billion dollar homes on island. To be a very successful author, <laughs> you know, there's there's a teeny 
tiny little stratospheric level up at the very top where, you know, the, the people who like everyone knows their names, but 99.99999% of the rest of us are just in this sort of middle ground. And so it feels like success if anybody reads the book. So, I mean, honestly, as I was talking about earlier, when it first started coming out and people were writing to me saying, I read it and it feels, it feels like you're describing what's in my mind. I, that is when I felt like it had succeeded because it, it made it out of my head <laughs> into the world, which is true. Um, but to your question of whether that also comes with pressure, it only comes with pressure in that um, because I'm a, a human being and a perfectionist, successful feelings never last. So, you know, if I had said to myself three years ago, if I just publish this book and one person reads it, I'm going to feel successful. That was true. And I did feel successful when people started reading it. But, you know, five minutes later, I'm like, so now what? <laughs> now what am I going to do? It, no feeling of success lasts forever. So, of course, now I'm back trying to write another book. And it's like, oh, this one, this book can't just write the next one. I've got to struggle all over again. <laughs> can, can you talk about that book, what you're working on now? Um, no, and not because I'm being coy, just because there's not enough to talk about. It's, it's the early, the early, early stages of writing uh, an essay collection just looks like a pile of notes. It looks like a pile of trash, actually, is what it looks like in the beginning. There's just little notes all piled up on a table. So it, I, I would tell you if there was anything to tell yet, but right now it's still coming together. That's all right. Uh, okay. So given your experiences, um, you know, having, taken this journey uh, as a writer um, kind of and I ask this question sometimes of authors who've had some success and have learned along the way if you could tell your younger writing self something uh, valuable and helpful based on what you've learned that might help your younger writer self what would that be I love that question I ask that question a lot when I interview people too I think it I think it, it generates Good advice. Um, I, gosh, I, th I mean, two things. One thing that I actually do tell younger writers, because I do um, occasionally I, I teach or do, you know, writing seminars, is if you are not in a position in life where you can make your living off of your creative writing, which almost no one is until you've already had some success, which means if you're trying to break through and get that success, you're not in a place where you can live off it yet. Um, and, you know, if no one has just gifted you with a bag with a million dollars in it to live off of, you have to have a job to pay your rent while you're trying to pursue your creative goals. If you can finagle it such that your job allows you to practice the craft of writing every day, that can be really handy. And that is something that I did when I was young. I worked in um, corporate communications, which, of course, is nowhere near as satisfying as writing your own thing. But you do have to be in the daily practice of writing efficiently and being edited by someone else and writing to a certain word count and having to sit down at the desk every day and write, even if you're not in the mood. So um, as completely unsexy as corporate communications and marketing is, I mean, it's a job where you can write. So, and, you know, as I'm trying to remember who I interviewed once, it was like, it's a great job because you can take home the printer paper. <laughs> I can't remember who that was, but it, you know, it was free paper. Um, advice I would give myself to the self who was actually doing those corporate communications jobs would be to try to carve out some time 
to write the creative stuff at the same time. And that's hard to do. If you come home at the end of the day and you're exhausted and your brain is spent because you've been writing about suitcases or whatever all day, um, it's hard to find time to write what you want to write in your own voice. And I think I didn't do that for a long time because I thought I had so little brain power left at the end of the day and so little time left at the end of the day that I wouldn't be able to accumulate enough to become anything. And it, later on, I realized you can, you know, write 10 minutes a day. It piles up. It, you know, it takes time, but that's how a lot of people get their writing done, just little tiny pieces every day. Well, I don't know about the printer paper, but as a podcaster, uh, I get more books than I have time to read. So there's a perk there. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, now you had a, speaking of, um, you know, sort of the marketing side of things, uh, you had a funny pandemic story relating to your book. When I Miss You When I Blink uh, was chosen for the Hudson Books Read of the Month, uh, it was to be featured where and what happened? This was the most lovely, wonderful, sweet thing. And all you can do is laugh about it. So at the very beginning of this calendar year, I got word that Hudson Books, which is, of course, the airport bookstore chain all over the world, had chosen I Miss You When I Blank as their read of the month for April, that coming up in April, they were going to be putting it in the front of every airport bookstore. And I was so thrilled. It was like the, the most, it was so touching to me just that like the airport bookstore chain likes this book enough to think that they should put it in people's hands before they get on a plane. I was so thrilled. And it also, in a way, felt it had that kind of like big break feel to it. Like, wow, there's going to be thousands of copies sold at one time. And then, of course, by April, all flights were grounded. So I don't even know where those books are. I assume they're in boxes on the floor of airport bookstores. Um, but, you know, that's not Hudson's fault. That's not anybody's fault. That's just the world and that's how things go and, and by the time april actually rolled around i really was laughing about it very hard not laughing because there's a pandemic because that's horrible but laughing about the whole you know it really can't count on anything you never know how things are going to go well I'm, I'm sensing that that uh might work its way metaphorically into one of your essays uh coming up uh it, it should if, if you hadn't already thought about it <laughs> hadn't already thought about it. Uh, all right, so we got one final read here. Um, before we get to that, though, I want to ask you this question, which I ask authors uh, a lot, and that is, uh, why do you write? I write because I can't not. It's, you know, I joke that I'm a one-trick pony and I only have one trick, and that trick is the essay. I write in essays because that is just enough space with just enough boundary around it to challenge me to sort out whatever story I'm telling, whatever question I'm trying to answer, whatever challenge I'm dealing with, and actually come to some conclusion, even if the conclusion is, there is no neat conclusion for this. Um, that, and I, I don't know when it started. Maybe it was in school, but I love the essay form. It's a perfect length to tell a story. Um, and I find myself just out in life putting essays together as I go through the world, collecting evidence and sorting it into buckets and going, these things are thematically related that happened today. And these things could all go together in a story. It is just how my brain works. At some point I wore down those pathways and there they are. And that's, that's what I do. <laughs> that's great. Um, so a lot of times, Mary Laura, you're uh, on the end that I'm on right now asking the questions and you do it, uh, in a lot of different locations, but one of the places you do it is uh, with the uh, public television. 
in Nashville. Just talk briefly about that because it's I think it'll set up this final read that you're going to do. And uh, I think this final read is all about making the guest feel comfortable, which is, I mean, I guess you could carry that not just from the interview, but to life in general, making the people around you feel comfortable. But uh, talk about public television, what you do on that, and uh, and then set up this read for us. Sure. So um, I co-host a show on Nashville Public Television. My co-host is J.T. Ellison, who's a thriller writer who lives here in Nashville. Um, and it's funny because we co-host the show, but we never actually see each other because the way we co-host is we take turns hosting. So we're never in the same place at the same time. So on public television, of course, there are no... There aren't ads like there are on network TV. So it's an interstitial program, which means it's a short program that comes on in between other programs. So I used to say, like when we first started, this is the, our show is the tiny show you see while you're waiting to watch Downton Abbey. Um, and it's, I'm so grateful for this, this little side gig show. It is so much fun. I get to talk to author friends all over the country. I get to read um, all sorts of different stuff. And I get to ask people questions, which, you know, it's so much fun to interview people. And selfishly, I often will ask questions that I've been struggling with. I will ask people, you know, how do you do this? And how do you do that? So I'm, you know, I'm sneaking in a lot of personal writing instruction <laughs> through these interviews. Um, yeah, I would, I would add to that, that, uh, you know, I had a, when I was thinking about retiring um, from the law firm, I was thinking about how do I advance my education? Do I go get a MFA? Do I take a bunch of courses? Well, let's don't let the secret out. But after having interviewed 125 authors, I've gotten an education, you know? Yeah. yeah I mean, we, learn, <laughs> we, learn, we learn a lot from each other. Yeah. Um, but I had not had any television experience before this show. Um, National Public Television came to me and asked if I would consider doing it. Um, and I said, I, I'm happy to, but I've never done any TV. So you might want to test me out and make sure I actually am decent on camera. So they brought me in to do a screen test. Um, and at the time, I had just had a facial. It was the end of the little teeny tiny book tour for Penguins with People Problems. And I celebrated by getting a facial. And I had a bad reaction to something in the facial. And so on the screen test, which thank God nobody saw, I had this like oozing rash <laughs> all over my face. But anyway, I love that little side tussle. It's a great... It's a great fun job, and um, I chose an essay about that job to end this book, um, not only because it worked timing-wise. This book kind of ends as I get to Nashville, um, but because of the, the message of the essay. So I'm going to read to you a little bit from the introduction of that essay and a little bit from the very end. So there's some story missing here in the middle that, um, that you can read on your own, but this, this gets to the message. The essay is called Try It Again more like you. As soon as the cameras start rolling, I freeze. I'm supposed to introduce the guest and say my opening lines. Welcome to A Word on Words. I'm Mary Laura Philpott, and today we're talking to, but suddenly my ability to modulate my own volume and pronounce vocabulary in the language I've been speaking all my life has left me. I'm yelling, welcome to A Word on Words. I'm Mary Laura Philpott, and today we're talking I sound like the robo-voice of a 1990s answering machine on high speed. Please leave a message after the tone. Matt laughs. He's operating one of the cameras, and because this is public television and everyone has at least two roles at the same time, he's also our editor, the one who will later take all the rough interview footage and weave it together into a finished show. I know why he's laughing. This happens every time. He leans out from around the camera. Try it again. More like you, he says. 
I take a deep breath and start over. I used to think that if only I could make everything perfect, then I could relax and have fun. If I could just eliminate all mistakes, my life would settle into place quick and my mind would rest. If I'm being truthful, I have to acknowledge that on some unchangeable, deep down level, there's still a part of me that thinks that. I'm still a first grader at a spelling bee, thinking that what matters more than anything is that I get every single word right. But by now, I've built up a crowd of selves who can set that little girl at ease. It's okay, they tell her. Mistakes will happen. They have happened, and it's not the end of the world. They get her to loosen up a little. They help her see that doing things wrong is part of doing life right. They show her that joy is bigger than fear. It can even be funny when things go haywire. If you're going to take just one thing from this story, let it be this. You can always start over. Sometimes my guests, especially the debut authors who haven't done much press yet, stumble over their words or forget someone's name or blurt out a thought they didn't really mean to share. A look of panic always crosses their face when that happens. There's no need to worry, I tell them. I put my hand on theirs and say, it's fine. We have plenty of time. Try it again, more like you. I love this, Mary Laura, not not just because of what it says about what you did to get your guests comfortable, but I've experienced that too uh, in the studio with authors sometimes who are nervous. And I remind them that I have this editing software and uh, I continue to learn how to use it. So when we mess up and both of us are going to during the course of this, I will try to fix it and uh, we'll sound a whole lot smarter than we really were. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing better in the whole wide world than pre-recorded audio. Yeah, It's great. No one has to see my face and my bandana that I'm wearing around my neck because I forgot to bring my mask out with me today. And every time I stumble, you can fix it. Yeah. And as I was coming uh, from the kitchen here to set up today, I, I looked down. I realized, oh, I've got shorts on that uh, you know have checks in them, and I've got a shirt on that has them too. That doesn't really go together. And I realized, wait a minute, nobody's going to see my shorts in this. Uh, <laughs> they're not even going to see anything. But you're not—you only see the top of my shirt <laughs> through this process. Well, um, it, Mary Laura, this has been a wonderful uh, hour, a little more than an hour today. And uh, listeners, there's going to be information in the show notes about Mary Laura, her book, uh, how you can connect with her, uh, information about uh, word, word, is word by word? Yes. Or word, word on by, word. Word on words. Okay. It's, and it's uh, so simple, but it's kind of a tongue twister. It is. <laughs> it's yeah. I can see how. And, and I do I do remember those days, too. The first time I actually went into the podcast studio to record uh now, I don't think anything about it, but uh, at the time, it was almost, uh, you're nervous about every word that comes out of your mouth, you know, and it, mm-hmm. that first one was really awkward. Um, now, I'm sure that, although, I don't know, video, um, it's still, you probably have to just kind of think about it not being there, right? The yeah. camera. You just have to forget it's there. Just forget it's there. And so, maybe that's a good thing. If the camera's on, you just just forget it's there and, and talk. But anyway... Um, I digress. I want to thank you, Mary Laura, for being on the show. This has been great stuff, and I really look forward to uh, reading uh, that next book that's now, I think you said, in that uh, shitty first draft stage. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and you're working on it. But thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me, and thanks for doing your show. It's a lot of fun to listen to. Well, that's it for today. 
another fine author giving voice to the written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at orthocarolina.com. Ortho Carolina, you improved.